at the Father, and we notice that the word Father can mean several different things when we come to Scripture. Uh, the word Father can refer to the source of all creation. So when we refer to God as Father, it can be like what Paul does in Ephesians 3 or in Acts chapter 17 when Paul says that we all come from God. He is the source of all life. So in that sense, he is the Father and that all life comes from him. Father can refer to the relationship within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. So when Jesus, Matthew 26, 39, uh, he is praying to the Father. He says, my Father. Or in John 17, when we read about the prayer, he refers to God as Father. In John 15, verses 9, or John 5, 19 through 26, Jesus repeatedly says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I have come to do my Father's will. So the relationship between Jesus and and God is Father and Son. Father can also refer to our adoption because of the gospel. Um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, he says, pray our Father in heaven. So not just his Father, but if we believe in Christ, it's our Father. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, we read that by belief in Jesus Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God that we become the children of God, thus he is our Father. So when we're in the creed, which one does it mean? Well, it possibly means all three, but I think particularly it refers to Father as the source of all creation. After all, when we look at the statement, it's, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It seems to be making a statement that this God is the one who has created all things. He is the source of all life. He is the one who has spoken it into all of existence. Now, when we come to the Bible, it does not give us all the details about how creation came about which would be a lot of fun to know more details, but it is abundantly clear that God is the one who created. We see that in Genesis 1, Psalm 8, Psalm 104, all throughout the scripture, it refers to God as creator, that it's his heavens, his earth, it's what he has created, and in Colossians chapter 1, we read it as that it is he that sustains all of creation. So what we understand then, the earth is not the random colliding of particles we're not, we're not the chaotic result of just uh, of, of randomness and chance, but rather what we have here is the earth is made through the creative power of God. This statement that we have in the Apostles' Creed draws attention to our God as the all-powerful creator. And so what I want us to do is just look at God's word and see what does it say about our God? How does it reveal him to us as this all-powerful creator. And so my goal is to, for us just to gaze into the brilliance, into the awesome nature of God, that we would be in awe of God this morning. And so we're going to go to Isaiah 40. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, Israel is about to go into exile, and so Isaiah is writing to them as if they are in exile. Now they're going to go into exile because they've been disobedient to God. And so Isaiah writes this passage in order to give them hope when they're in exile. And notice, the way he gives them hope is leading them to behold their God. So that's what he wants to do. He says, I want you to look at God. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to stand. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 through 31. We stand here at the reading of God's word because we believe it comes with his full authority. 
It's inspired by him for the purpose of building and correcting and training us in righteousness. So there's a long section. If you do need to sit, that's okay. Chapter 40, verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor as its beast enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." Why do you speak, O Jacob, and speak of Lord? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our Father, God, we, we thank you for this text. And Lord, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we acknowledge you that you are the everlasting, all-powerful, God who has created all things. You are the source of all life. It is from you that we find our purpose, our meaning, our existence, and it is you who sustains us. It is by your mercy and grace that we breathe at this very moment. 
God, I pray that this passage would lead us to great humility and to great dependence upon you. Lord, I pray that whatever situation that we're in, that because of this passage that that helps us to behold you, that we would find comfort, hope, that we would find rest for our souls, that we would see that it is in you that, God, we have life. Lord, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Um, remember, Israel's in exile. They need hope. And so what does Isaiah say? Verse 9, behold your God. That's how it starts. Isaiah wants them to see God. Verse 10, we see that God will come and in his might, bringing judgment and reward. In verse 11, we see that he will come like a shepherd ready to gather his sheep. And, and our focus primarily is going to be on verses 12 through 31, where we're just going to be looking at, at this God who is coming. So we might say a few words that you're not super familiar with, uh, and that's okay because when we talk about God, we have to realize that there are going to be sometimes different words that we use to define him, describe him, uh, and sometimes that's going to stretch us a little bit, uh, but hopefully I've explained enough of them that we'll be all on the same page. Uh, We begin, we're just going to see what do we see about the God of the Bible, this God that we say, we believe in God the Father Almighty. First thing we understand is our God is infinite in essence. He's infinite in essence. Verse 12, we see that God measures all the waters of earth in the palm of his hand. So just just take that in. In fact, the span of his hand is how he measures all of creation. So we have no idea how big the universe actually goes. And God says, it's about that big. The Bible teaches that God fills all of creation. There is not one area in which our God does not fill. So what that means is that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. For God to be infinite in essence means that he is everywhere, fills everything. He has no body and thus he's unable to be contained or restricted. He is everywhere present at all times this is why when solomon he builds the temple in saint chronicles 2 6 he says this but who is able to build him a house since heaven even highest heaven cannot contain him who am i to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him so solomon realizes i make this temple which is supposedly the dwelling place of god and then at the same point he goes not even heaven contains this god So nowhere in the Bible do we have this idea that the temple, the tabernacle, that anything is able to contain God. It simply is symbolic of his presence in a particular place. Creation itself, the entire cosmos, does not contain God. Psalm 139, the writer says, where can I go from your presence? It's a good question. So he goes, God is present in heaven, in Sheol, in the sea. And then he does that famous passage where we see that God is present even in the womb of a mother. We just got done preaching through Jonah. We see that when Jonah is at the bottom of the sea in the belly of a well, God is present with him. Coming back to Isaiah, verse 15, we see the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God. We are merely dust 
on his scales. Just think about that. So we have 300 million, 300 million, right? Yeah, 300 million people in America. Dust. That's just dust. Out of the 900 million in India, dust. That's all that it is. Doesn't even make the scale begin to move. Now these verses are not meant to show that we're meaningless and worthless, but that our God is immense. He's infinite in His essence, and we in no way compare with Him. He is present in all places at all times. This means we are never alone. Now think about how applicable this is when we pray. When you pray, God hears. Why? Because He's there. He's Everywhere, Jonah at the belly of the well in the bottom of the sea prays God is there. Why? Because there's nowhere that God is not. We can never be too far away from God because he is everywhere. This means Israel, when they're in exile, in a foreign land, under a foreign rule, is no further from God than when they were in Jerusalem. So where you you are here today, God is here. When you're at home, when you're at work, if you're on the face of the moon, God is there. You're never less in His presence because He fills everything. That's one thing we see here in this passage. Next, we see that our God is infinite in knowledge. We see verses 13 through 14. We read of of our God's infinite knowledge. The word... Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Can be translated, who knows the mind of God? Or who directs God? Who advises God? Have you ever thought about that? Who who gives him information? Where does he get his inside scoop on things? And of course the answer is no one, because God does not learn from any man. Do you realize that? He does not learn from us. Job learns this truth. In Job chapter 38, Job has gone through great suffering, lost immense uh, uh, things, his family and all of his possessions. And he, he questions God as if God owes him an explanation. And he questions God as if he should be able to understand everything that God does. And so in chapter 38, God now responds to him. And what we learn is, oh Job... You cannot understand all of God. And we, like Job, cannot either. Now, it's not that we can't understand anything, but it's that we will never understand everything comprehensively. Job 38, verses 4 through 6. God now replies to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or where were its bases sunk? Or or who laid its cornerstone? So God God is just asking Job basic questions about how he established creation. Were you there? Do you know how I did it? You want to understand everything that I know? Well, let's just start here. Do you understand this? No, you clearly don't. God is infinite in his knowledge. We are limited and finite in our understanding. 
In fact, Paul will praise God in Romans 11 for his infinite wisdom. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul walks through the glories of salvation that God gives us through Jesus Christ. And he highlights the grace over and over again, walking through chapter by chapter, all the way through chapter 11. And at the end of chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, this is what Paul says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you see that? For from him through him and to him are all things. God holds all things, gives life to all things, gives purpose to all things, contains all things, sustains all things, knows all things. Before we move on, we must realize something else about this, this knowledge of God. God has infinite wisdom not because of contemplation or observation. He's not watching us to learn about us. That's what we do. We watch things, we learn things, we make hypotheses about things. If, if we do this, will it respond like this? We are constantly learning about the world that we live in. He doesn't know because he observes. It, if his knowledge is based on observation, that means that he's not all-knowing. And if he's not all-knowing, then it means that he is not immutable immutable means that he's unchanging it's one of the core doctrines of what we believe in god so if we believe in a mutable god a god who changes then what we do is we believe in a god who learns and if he's learning then it means he doesn't know everything and so if he's learning that means he's growing in his wisdom and his knowledge which means he's not infinite in those things and if that is true then can we trust him what if he chooses another way now based upon his new knowledge for salvation? What if he changes and now the way he sees things and understands things and perceives things to operate and live in a different way? We are mutable, which is why we change and why we grow. You know, we grow till we're teenagers and we know everything, right? And then we become 25 and we realize, oh, I don't think I actually knew everything. And then we get a little older and we go, we definitely don't know everything. And then we get a little older and we just know, we begin to forget what it is that we did know. <laughs> right? But God knows all things. There's nothing that he learns. And so when we think about God, one thing we have to do is keep and maintain this creator creature distinction and because of sin we always narrow it we want to narrow it which means we, we want to think that we're like god or that god is like us and when we do that we think god knows things like like we know things and he acts like we act which is why we think sometimes like job you need to give an answer for this because in our human reason there's no way that this should take place but God has given us his word so we can know him. So we need to realize that when we come to the Bible, we're coming to this infinite God. 
So in one sense, we can know nothing without him revealing to us because he's too great for us. But yet he gives us his word that we would know him. But as we know him, we never know him comprehensively. So every doctrine that we know, we know some of, but never all of. Does that make sense? Because he's infinite, and our finite minds cannot understand all of that because that's what it is to be creator-creature distinction there. And so it teaches us to be in humility as we come to this pres- into the presence of God. It teaches this is why we depend upon him. This is why we need to trust in him. This is why we come to him, and he is all the riches of all things. So as we think about God's infinite knowledge, we need to realize our God does not learn like we do by observation and contemplation. God's knowledge is causal, meaning he causes things. Genesis 1, he speaks creation into existence. When he speaks, things happen. He knows all things, declares all things, and everything works according to his will. And, and, and we have scripture like Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast in the lap. So we're throwing the dice, and yet Proverbs 16, 33 says it's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. Ephesians chapter 1, 11, when talking about salvation, Paul says this, all things work according to the counsel of his will. What does all mean? Like while we don't understand everything comprehensively, we certainly understand some things because God has given us revelation. All means all, right? All things work according to the counsel of his will. So hear this. God knows not only fills all of creation and is present with us everywhere, but he also in his infinite wisdom is making sure all things work according to his will purpose it's because god's infinite wisdom that we love passages like romans 8 28 we know that for those who love god all things work together for good god is not trying to spin the bad things that come into our life for our good he's not constantly going oh man i gotta spend this one i gotta spend this one i gotta spend this one i gotta spend this thing no because of his infinite wisdom he has planned and declared how he uses them for our good Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this. God says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is the God that we come to. He is infinite in essence. He fills everything and he knows everything because he causes, declares, and orders everything according to his will. We also see in our passage God is infinite in power. In verse 22, we see that God sits above the earth. Now this brings up a fun question, right? Well, wait a minute. I thought God is everywhere. So does he sit above the earth? So, no, of course he doesn't sit above the earth as if that's where he's located. But, but the writers are communicating a truth about God. So what is this truth? It's that God's throne is above all other thrones. There is no throne above God. There's no rule above God. God exerts his power not over part of creation, but over all of creation. 
There is no, there's no throne higher. So think about it. Israel is in Babylon. They're under foreign rule. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful person in the world right now. And, and they're being reminded, yes, but, but God's throne is far above Nebuchadnezzar's. Far above Nebuchadnezzar's throne. And the fact that Israel is in Babylon does not mean that God has been dethroned. In verse 23, we see the rulers of earth are nothing compared to God. He brings them to nothing. In fact, we see that truth in Psalm 2. In Psalm chapter 2, we see that all the nations rage against God. And they're all raging and they're all planning on on how we're going to overthrow God. They say, we don't need God. We can resist him. We're going to rebel against him. And then we're given the response of God. And he laughs. That's God's response to the entire humanity rebelling against him because they have no chance. Their power is incomparable to God. The full power of mankind is like a flea trying to pick up Mount Rainier. And that doesn't even come to close to the impossibility of us trying to be able to overcome God in his power. In verse 24, we see God's breath blows humanity away like the wind carries the dust. I mean, there it emphasizes God's eternality. Man is finite, God is eternal, but yet also the same time of God's great power. Man is weak and man is fragile. We, we pass like the dust in the air, and yet God is eternal and strong. We see throughout Scripture, God's power all throughout Scripture, At the blast of his nostrils, we're told, he parts the Red Sea, and Israel walks through on dry ground. At his his command, the skies open up, and fire rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah. We see through the Genesis account that God brings down rain upon the earth for 40 days that floods the earth. He brings forth the plagues that completely decimate Egypt. God's power is on display all throughout the Bible. We see that most clearly at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. He dies three days later. He comes rising from the grave, defeating sin, death, and Satan. Amen, indeed. Isaiah 45, 7, this is what it says. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. So just, just pause right now. Create that category in your head. I form light, create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Most people don't have that category for God. I am the Lord who does all these things. There is nothing outside of God's power. There's nothing outside of his control. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He just turns it wherever he will. He just turns it. The most powerful king on earth, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar. You pick your king or, or ruler now. And we want to have fear oftentimes because of what we see on CNN and anything else. And yet, what we need to do is come back to the Word and say, but our God has everything in His hand, and He can simply turn them as He wishes. Look at verse 26. We see that at His command, the stars come out. 
Now, honestly, we have trouble calling our kids at times. Like, right? Like, my dog actually does a pretty good job. Comes like 99% of the time on the first time. But when God speaks, creation just responds. And notice what it says. He calls the stars by name and not one is missing. Now, why is not one star missing? That's a good question, right? Like, how does that happen? I mean, I got three kids. If I got two, I'm happy showing up, right? Like, that's passing in my house. Like, well, the third one, it'll keep up sometime. And it rotates through which one that is. But not one is missing when God calls. No, no, why? No star is missing because God's power brings them out and his power is infinite it's unable to be resisted now just pause and think about that god has power over all creation why when he says all powerful okay but but how does that work because god rules over all creation and wherever god rules he is present and because god is present everywhere He knows everything perfectly, and everything works perfectly according to his will. You see, God calls every star by name because he knows every star, because he sees every star. He's with every star, and thus his power is over every star. You see that? Our God fills everything. Where his presence is, there is his rule. So if you want to find what's outside, you know, what can resist God, you have to find something outside of creation, which is nothing. Wherever God is, his rule is present, and it's infinite. Because God is everywhere, sees all things, knows all things, is present, rules all things. What this means is there's nothing in all creation in which our God does not see. There's nothing in which he does not know. There's nothing in which he does not rule. Now think, now that may appear scary in some way, right? Or it's extremely comforting that wherever you're at right now, God is with you, knows you, sees you, is with you, and his rule is working for your good. The book of Daniel constantly shows us God's power. We preached Daniel last year. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go to the fiery furnace. Remember? Nebuchadnezzar says, bow before my idol. And they say, "Mm, we're not going to do that. Um, God, because he sees them, is with them and rules over the fire. And, And remember, God causes the fire not to hurt them at all. And yet the guards who threw them in were killed. And then when Nebuchadnezzar looks up, he says, we threw three guys in, right? And, of course, the guy on the right always agrees. He's like, yes, of course we did. Uh, And then Nebuchadnezzar says, but there's four now the guy's going, yeah, I don't, I don't know that one. And Nebuchadnezzar says, the fourth is like the son of man. God is with them in the fire. And so, so then Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he goes up to the fire and he says, guys, come out. We've we got to talk about this. And, and we're told they don't even smell like smoke. Their clothes aren't even, there's no, there's no burning on them at all. God rules over everything, even the ability of the fire not to even. I mean, we, we make s'mores, and we come in, and like the clothes feel like, you know, smell like smoke, and my wife's like, throw them on the washer right away, you know? 
Because they make everything else feel like, smell like fire and smoke. You're literally in a furnace and they come out smelling like Tide or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Daniel 6, Daniel goes in the lion's den, same thing. God knows Daniel is with Daniel, rules over the lions. And so what happens? The lions don't even open their mouths. And, and I got to think that Daniel's still scared. <laughs> like, like, you're in there, you're like, this is crazy. And yet, they just lie there with no ability, no desire to even hurt Daniel. Hear this. There is nothing in all creation that our God does not rule. Let that come for you. If you're praying for someone right now, and you're thinking, God, bring them to salvation. Save them. What hope do we have? We have a lot of hope. Our God knows all things. When we're praying for India and for Thailand and for people of unreached people groups to come to know faith, can our God do it? Yes! He has all power. He's present in India. So the cool thing is, is next week, two weeks, when you're here worshiping, we will be in India worshiping, and guess what? The same God's with both of us at the same time because he fills everything, and he knows exactly what you're saying and exactly what I'm saying there at the same time because he is present everywhere and knows all these things. Our God fills creation with his very essence. This is why it's ridiculous and stupid and foolish and absurd to worship anything but God. And yet we do it. We constantly battle with idols. And here in our text, we see that they struggle with this. In verse 18, when, when Isaiah says, To whom then will you liken God, or what will you compare him with? An idol? And just, just notice the mockery. A craftsman casts, and, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold. So they literally take a piece of wood, which they pick. And later in Isaiah, they'll say, you know, they'll pick a log. They'll take half of it for fire. The other half, they'll make, a, they'll make an idol out of it. And then they'll, they'll, they'll put gold all on it, and then they stake it to the ground so it doesn't fall over because it's a bad thing when your idol falls over. He's mocking. What, what are you going to compare me with, he says. Something that you literally divide in half. You burn this half, but yet this half seems divine. But good thing you stake it so it doesn't fall down. And those are the things that, that we worship, and we will worship them when we don't behold our God. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Like, now think about this. This is what we do because of our sinfulness in our heart. We worship created things. We exchange the glory of God for the pathetic glory of finite things that don't even, don't even make dust on the scales of God. Why do we do that? We do it because we don't behold God. But when we come into his scriptures and we see the glory of this God, it shows, it shows the futility of all other idols. I mean, doesn't idolatry sound ridiculous when you think of it in these terms? Like, like what, do you, what do you really want to worship? And think about all the things that we, we love, don't they go out of date in like six months or a year? The cure of idolatry is to look at God. Look at verse 26 in Isaiah. 
It says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Listen, the cure for our lust, the cure for our restless heart, the cure for your marriage, the cure for parenting, for how we think of money, for our anxiety, for what will happen in America the next election, for the fear of going into unreached, um, hostile people groups. The cure is God. And it's this God, not any God, but this God that we have in this Bible. The cure for when you're under a foreign rule in Babylon is God. The cure for going to your neighbor, going across the street and talking about Jesus is, is God. He's the one we need to trust Him. And as we come and behold this God, the fears that we have are melted away because of His glory and His radiance. Remember, Isaiah is writing this because Israel needs hope. They're in a foreign land, under a foreign rule. So he says, look, the thing you need most is to know who your God is. In verse 27, Isaiah addresses the fact that Israel feels alone. Look at 27. This is what Israel is saying. Which is why he says, why do you say, O Jacob? Jacob refers to Israel. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded from God. What are they doing? Think about it. What are they doing? We have people under foreign rule, and they're looking with their eyes at their experience, at how they feel, and they're saying, Man, I, guess, I guess God's not on his throne anymore. Because it doesn't look like it. Because it doesn't feel like he's on his throne right now. I don't see how us being in exile shows God's glory. And so based upon their feelings, they're now determining who their God is. And they're saying, I, I guess we're hidden from God. He's probably not everywhere. He actually doesn't see everything. My right is disregarded by my God. It's not his fault. He's not everywhere. He can't be everywhere. At least, that's what they think about God. When we take our experiences and we try to define God from that, we'll always come up with a lesser God. And so Isaiah, now what he does, in verse 28, he's going to correct them. He's already corrected them. Now he asks the question, and now he's going to correct them again, but give them a, a, a brief summary of who this God is. So in verse 28, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He says the Lord is everlasting. He still rules. He's eternal. He did rule. He does rule. He will always rule. He says he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's omnipotent. He's the source of all life. He contains all power. And then as if to explain that, he says he doesn't grow faint or weary. It's not that God doesn't see you because he's tired of watching over you. You haven't worn out God. And then he says his understanding is unsearchable. Look, you just don't understand how it's working right now creator-creature distinction. We don't see all the pieces of the puzzle. We only see our little part in our 70, 80 years at most probably. And yet God sees how it all fits together and how it all weaves together. And so what Isaiah is doing is just saying, just look at God. Don't look at your experience and define God. Come, look at who God is in his word. Let that give you comfort. And so what we see is that our God, for all of eternity, rules 
over everything. Never will he be dethroned. Every event that takes place is not because of random chance, but because of God's causal knowledge. Never will he not see us, know us, and be with us. So when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, this is what we're declaring. We're declaring the truth that our God eternally reigns over all creation, fills all of creation, is present in all of creation, rules over all creation, is the source of life in all of creation. This is what we must come to every time we're in the Word. This is our God. This is we behold our God. That our fears are able to melt away. Not because they don't matter, but because we see how powerful our God is and that he overcomes all of our fears. Notice, God shares himself with those who love him also. Now this is where it gets crazy. God shares himself with those who love him. All other religions, you don't have a God who gives of himself. There's no religion that does that. They might give something, but they don't give of themselves. But notice what we have here. Verse 29, we read that God gives power to the faint and the weak, and he gives strength to the one without strength. In verse 31, though, we see that those who wait on God, meaning trust in God, will be given strength so they will fly like eagles and run without getting weary. Okay, so this is good news, right? So God gives strength. So two things we learn here. Number one, our God's not distant, which we've already seen. He's present everywhere. He knows our pain, knows our suffering and weakness. He knows us. In Matthew 10, 29, we're told that there's not one sparrow that falls from the sky that God doesn't know. Uh, Psalm 56, 8, there's not one tear that we have that he does not aware of, that he does not count. He knew that was going to happen. Secondly, the strength of our God, the strength our God gives is himself. So he, he's everywhere. He's not distant. And he gives himself. Like when it says God gives strength, it's not like I give you my car keys. My car keys. Well, these are my church keys. I can give these. These are not me. This is not my essence. This is something I possess. And if I give you my keys, I'm giving you something I possess so that you now have it too. Or have it instead of me. But our God is infinitely strong. So just as God is love, as he is knowledge, as he is wrathful, as he is gracious, so he is strong. When he gives his strength, he gives himself. You have to see that. He's not giving, God is not made of parts. Another doctrine that we don't even have time to get is divine simplicity. There are no parts of God as if he's made up of different things. He is one. He is love. He is wrath. He is justice. He is knowledge. He is infinite in all of these ways, and all of them are who God is. When he gives strength, it's not keys. It's not something outside of him. It's him. He gives himself to those he loves that they would not be faint and they would not grow weary. So when Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, God does not send Paul some strength, but the strength that Paul talks about is Christ in him. Do you see what we're saying? It's literally God within us is strengthening us, not something he emails to us or sends to us or taxes to us or exchanges with us. It's him living in us 
is our strength. That's our comfort. That's why we have hope in this world. We are, and think about it. It's true for everything. We're saved by his grace. What's his grace? He gives his son. He doesn't give something else. He gives himself. He gives his son so that we could be saved. When he gives us love, in 1 John chapter 4, we read, we love because God loves us and his love is in us. The way we love as believers is because God is in us and his now, now his love comes out of us that we would love others in a unique way, which is why the love we have for one another is very different than the love of the world. So we must see that not, not only are we not alone, God literally lives within us, giving us strength. The reason we can love those who are difficult, the reason we can have peace in tribulation, the reason we can be strong and not faint in difficult circumstances is because the infinite, eternal, all-powerful God dwells within you. This is who our God is. The entire in- eternality and infiniteness of God, how we say that, dwells in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the God the Bible presents us with. So when we come and we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, this is the God that we believe in. Present in all places, rules in all places, sees all things, knows all things. And the crazy thing is, it's not some deistic thing where God's just distant from us. He's wound up the clock and he's walked away. But he's with us and in us as his children. This is who our God is. Let's pray. Our Father.